Well, Merry Christmas, church. Merry Christmas. I cannot believe that Christmas week has arrived. And before we reach the end of 2015, which is fast approaching, I wanted us to be able to um, do one thing. Well, it's really two things. Um, Every quarter, Sovereign Grace Churches, that's the denomination we're a part of, um, releases a mission video where they give us a little snapshot of what God is doing in other Sovereign Grace Churches. And one of the things that most encouraged me about this video you're gonna, we're going to watch here in a few minutes is that in the video you see snapshots of what God is doing in Sovereign Grace Churches in Mexico and in Latin America. And I don't know about you, but one of the coolest things that the Lord has done in large part due to no strategic plan of our own in the last few years in this church, is to increase the racial diversity that we have here. And in large part, that's a reflection of the fact, in my opinion, that Jesus Christ is increasingly the center of this church and what defines us as a people. When Jesus is the center, diversity happens. You don't achieve diversity by running after diversity. Okay? You become more diverse. You, you look more like what heaven's going to look like as you keep your eyes on Jesus. And so it so blesses me that what we've seen God do in our church lately um, reflects what he's starting to do in a lot of other Sovereign Grace churches. So we're going to watch this video. It's about six minutes long. While we do that, we'll receive our tithes and offerings for this morning. And then when the video is done, uh, we've asked Claudia Crichigno, one of our members, to come and pray for God's blessing on the connections and ministry opportunities we have in the local Latin community. So enjoy this video with me. Hi, my name is Rich Richardson, and I'm the Director of Global Missions for Sovereign Grace Churches. This video you're about to see highlights some of what the Lord is doing in the Spanish-speaking world. The Latin American region in Sovereign Grace is composed of three Spanish-speaking churches. They're led by Helmen Avila, Carlos Contreras, and Elias Reyes. I'm eager for you to meet these men so you can hear their story in their words about what the Lord is doing in the Spanish-speaking world and in their churches. Dios está haciendo algo nuevo en Latinoamérica. Hay un nuevo mover de reforma y renovación en la iglesia. Y a nosotros, Dios también nos está bendiciendo como familia de iglesias. Te invito a que veas lo que Dios está haciendo entre nosotros. Ok, en 1976, un grupo de jóvenes nos juntamos en un parque en Ciudad Juárez, bajo la sombra de un árbol, y eventualmente llegó a ser una congregación establecida en Ciudad Juárez, y llegó el punto en el que esa congregación eh, creció, y fue precisamente de ahí de donde nosotros fuimos enviados a plantar Misión de Gracia en aquí en El Paso, en 1999, había una seria necesidad en cuanto a el número de hispanos, el paso cuenta con un 82% de su población eh, hispana y estamos el día de hoy eh, precisamente aquí en el lado oeste como el Señor nos mandó a hacer y la verdad es que experimentamos nosotros el favor del Señor en que tenemos una congregación de gente muy entregada al Señor lo vemos en las misiones, lo vemos en su generosidad lo vemos en muchos aspectos entonces los ministerios en la iglesia están 
desarrollándose y continúan creciendo con la mentalidad de hacer las cosas para la gloria. Hola, soy Armando Rocha. Eh, Marcel y yo eh, tenemos un, un grupo de discipulado aquí en su casa. Son jóvenes que están dispuestos a, a servir en la iglesia del Señor. Son jóvenes que están deseosos de conocer más de Él y de proclamar las buenas nuevas. Del gozo que el Espíritu Santo está trayendo a los miembros de esta congregación tiene como resultado primeramente de estar expuesto a la palabra de Dios de luego ellos eh, recibir la palabra de Dios y buscar cómo crecen en ella, cómo la obedecen y cómo la comparten. Estamos muy agradecidos con Dios porque puedes ver la gracia de Dios. semana increíble, estamos desvelados, sí, pero sí, felices, sí. Eh, esta conferencia que nos juntó ahora, eh, fieles a su llamado, una iniciativa de las iglesias de Gran Soberana Latinoamérica, sobrepasó todas mis expectativas. La conferencia fue el instrumento que el Señor utilizó para ministrarnos a nosotros y alcanzar a muchos que están deseosos de conocer la sana doctrina en un contexto de integridad, donde hay pasión, donde hay visión. Mi nombre es Gabriel Ortega, soy de Ciudad Chihuahua, de la capital. Soy de Durango, Durango, estamos en Arandas, Jalisco. Mi nombre es Enrique Villegas, soy de Orizaba, Veracruz, de la iglesia Vidas Transformadas. Realmente he sido muy beneficiado por estas conferencias. Creo que los temas fueron precisamente escogidos para personas como yo, para pastores jóvenes que estamos buscando la experiencia de hombres como Miguel Núñez, como, como Jeff, como Bob, como Carlos, estamos aprendiendo mucho, tanto yo como mi esposa, acerca de la visión, acerca de la adoración, de la importancia del Evangelio, de la centralidad de la Palabra. Ha sido una tremenda, tremenda bendición. Anyone who has been in Latin America at all says the same thing. God is doing something special. God is, something is going on. We can't completely define it. And what struck me on this trip was how your labors and the men that you work with and the people in your churches, what you've been doing for decades have now positioned you for what to, to participate in and play a part in what God is doing more broadly in Latin America. Estamos en un proceso de adoptar más iglesias, como por ejemplo el caso de Luis Bermea en, en Gracia Soberana Guadalajara, un hombre que se ha entregado a servir a Dios por 30 años y viene y nos pide que quiere ser parte de Gracia Soberana. Y estoy impresionado de cómo Dios en su soberanía me convenció de la necesidad de buscar relacionarme con otras iglesias. Yo no tenía esa experiencia de ser amado, de ser ministrado por otros pastores, por otras iglesias. Y he recibido ese amor, ese cuidado, ese aliento, esa consolación de Dios a través de estos siervos preciosos de Dios. El llamado de ir a ser discípulos de todas las naciones requiere 
de una coparticipación global, en donde podamos llevar en el corazón esto juntos y que las iglesias puedan también saborear el que si no pueden ir, puedan enviar, y si no pueden enviar, que puedan dar para la obra y que continuemos nosotros como hermanos, como familia de iglesias, invirtiendo en el reino de Dios, que juntos es más fácil. Thank you for praying for us. Maria, thank you for translating. Bien, oremos. Let's pray. Padre Santo, Heavenly Father, te doy las gracias, Señor bendito. I give you thanks, Heavenly Father, por todo tu amor para con nosotros. For all your love towards us. Señor, por todo lo que estás haciendo en Latinoamérica. For everything that you are doing in Latin America. Señor, en esta mañana, Padre Santo, venimos ante ti para pedirte, Señor, por el ministerio hispano. Father, on this morning, we come before you to ask you. Por todo lo que estás haciendo, Señor, en Latinoamérica y en este país. For everything that you are doing in Latin America and in this country. Señor, te pido tu bendición para estos siervos del Señor. Father, I ask for your blessing. All this. Gracias, Padre Santo, por tu amor, Señor, por tu ayuda. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your help. Gracias, Señor, por sostenernos, por tu gracia, Señor bendito. Father, thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for your grace. Alabado sea tu nombre, Señor, en esta mañana. Blessed be your name on this morning. Señor, te pido que traigas más gente, Señor, a tus pies. Father, I ask that you would bring more people to your feet. Señor, que podamos conocer más de ti. That we would be able to know more of you. De tu gran amor, Señor, para con nosotros. Of your great love for us. Señor, bendice, Señor, a cada siervo que en este día predica tu palabra. Father, bless every uh, saint that uh, today um, reads your word. Gracias, Señor, por morir en la cruz por nosotros. Thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for us. Alabado sea tu nombre, Señor, en el nombre de Jesús. Blessed be your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sister. Thank you, thank you. Before we send our uh, children to their classes, there's one more thing that I w would like to do, and that is to thank God for someone that I am earnestly hoping is in this room right now. Do we know that, Quinn? We do not know that. Okay. I'm going to speak about her. Can you do your best, pal? Great. That is Miss um, Brittany Fernandez. Um, Brittany, this is going to be weird. I'll tell all this and then she'll come in hopefully. <laughs> Brittany has worked in our church office for four and a half years. 
And that is a long time to put in some serious labor with a small team to care for our church and attend to all manner of administrative details and needs. And we are stronger and healthier and better organized because of her tireless work. Uh, Brittany, as of January 1st, is transitioning off the office staff to, uh, Lord willing, work for her dad's family business and go back and finish her college degree. So I am excited for her to do those things, uh, but we're going to miss her big time. And I wanted to uh, both give her a gift and then enable all of us to honor her as a church family because she has served our church big time. And I don't see her yet. Is that the case? Okay. Is she coming? Here she is. Okay, hold on. I'll tell you when to clap. Get ready. Go. (laughs) That's for you, Brittany. Come on up. Come on up. I know this is totally embarrassing, <laughs> and there's a million places you would rather be. Were you in King's Kids? Yeah. What class were you teaching? The nursery. The nursery. Surprise, surprise. Um, I just explained to our family that you have faithfully served us for four and a half years and have done a tremendous job going above and beyond the call of duty. And to work with Brittany is to experience a lot of days to go something like this. Hey, Brittany, could you do this for us? And then a day later, two days later, she comes back and says, well, I actually have a better way of doing that, and I have three other ideas. That's just normal life with Brittany. We're going to miss you, and I have a gift for you. So thank you, friend. You've done a great job. Yep. Great job. Very appropriate. I kind of like timing that. Wait till somebody walks in. Great. All right. Five to 11 year olds, you may now be dismissed. And Brother Mike Whitener, if you would come up and read the Word of God uh, before I preach it. morning, everyone. Let's fasten our hearts on God and His Word. We'll be listening to Psalm 102. Y número cientos y dos. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake 
I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations of old. You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that in response to your word read, that we would now give careful attention to your word preached. I pray you would quicken my mouth. I pray you would bring strength to my body, to our ears. Lord, you know that this time of year, there are 10,000 distractions, warring, pushing, pulling on the attention that you alone deserve. And so I pray today, Father, that for the next little while, whatever things we are already tempted to be distracted by, whatever situations or projects or needs or shopping or task lies before us this week, I pray that right now, we would stop and wait and allow you to speak to us. 
Help us to be quiet, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Care for our hearts. Speak your word. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Psalm 102. As we get into this psalm, which is the third psalm, if you haven't been here for a couple weeks, that we have looked at in the month of December, uh, this series of messages till the end of 2015 has been called Songs of the Savior. Before we jump into Psalm 102, I want to read to you an excerpt from an article that I saw on WebMD. Um, How many of you when you have a medical need, instead of calling your doctor, first go online. Yes, yes. I think physicians would sometimes say that creates more trouble than it's worth. But I know we do that. I certainly do that. And so I read this article on WebMD recently, and it said the following. Tis the season to be jolly? Not necessarily. Uh, wrote Denise Mann for WebMD, quote, For many people, the holiday season, which kicks off with Thanksgiving and spans through New Year's, is anything but blissful. Anything but blissful. In fact, this time of year may trigger a bout of the blues or perhaps ignite a depression that has been smoldering under the surface for months. While people with clinical depression should seek professional help, Those with a touch of the holiday blues can try these strategies recommended by experts to assure, strong word, a jolly Christmas and a happy new year. Okay, so here's some of her recommendations. This is a sincere article. Uh, Visit the ghost of Christmas past by avoiding stressful situations. suppose. (laughs) Common sense. Uh, Number two, lay off the eggnog and don't drink so much. No comment. Unwrap your heart by giving a gift. That's good. Shake things up and start a new tradition. Avoid Scrooges and Grinches. Lend Santa a helping hand by volunteering. Okay, and this is the last one I wrote down. Remember that it really is a wonderful life. And be grateful for what you have. Are those good recommendations? Mm, yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing collective hesitation. Yeah. Yeah, I think on one level they're helpful. Okay? So, it's hard to disagree with Miss Mann's practical wisdom. 
But on another level, I can't help but wonder, can strategies like those really assure a jolly Christmas and a happy New Year? Answer? No. No. Now, what, what if you're not struggling with mild seasonal depression? Okay, what if your suffering goes far deeper and clings more closely? What if you bring suffering into the holidays and you're going to still be suffering after the holidays? There's nothing seasonal about your suffering. It's, it's chronic. Okay, maybe it's something you're going through right now. And in that situation, in that hour, at least in my experience with suffering, it doesn't feel like life is wonderful. No matter how many times I tell myself that. Right? It, it feels like life is a mess. It feels like life is a disaster. That, that, that's how you feel when you're suffering. So, so what are you going to do? Try to, try to convince yourself that it's really not that bad, that it, that it really is a, a wonderful life? Well, good luck with that. I, I don't think there's anything particularly wonderful about disabled children Crushing debt, paralyzing illness, relational conflict, or broken marriages. And I hope you don't tell someone who has recently experienced sexual abuse that it really is a wonderful life. Which leaves this question, church. What are we going to do instead of that? If the answer to suffering is not just to remember it's a wonderful life, well, what is the answer? I'm going to seek to, Josh. I'm going to let the Word of God tell us. And friends, the reason that I say I'm going to let the Word of God tell us how to respond to suffering is that this book is not a sanitized fairy tale. It's not. This is a gritty book. This is an earthy book. This is an honest book. There's a lot of suffering in this book. And that means that when we want to know how to respond to our suffering personally and corporately, there's no better thing we can do than look to this book and say, Lord, you tell me what to do. Okay? I've got WebMD. There's help there. But Lord, ultimately, I need your word. need your word. And few books help us know how to respond to suffering better than the book of Psalms, by the way. And Psalm 102 is no exception. Look at the 
If you have a Bible open, if you don't, it's okay. I'll read it. There's an inscription at the beginning that says what this psalm is. Notice what it says. A prayer of the one afflicted when he is faint. You ever felt afflicted? Ever felt faint? The psalmist doesn't tell us what's going on. He doesn't say, I'm afflicted because. He just says, a prayer when I am afflicted and feel faint. And the fact that it's that general is really a good thing. Because you know what that lets us do? That lets us read a psalm like this and see our story in his story. And the reason that that's good, the reason that he doesn't say, well, a prayer to the one afflicted when this exact situation. It's just when you're afflicted. The reason that's good is that the psalm, in a sense, keeps its arms wide open to all of us and says, to whatever degree you're experiencing affliction, whatever degree you're experiencing suffering right now, identify with what this psalmist is feeling. He's going to describe some things that you're probably feeling, that I'm probably feeling when we suffer, and then let him lead you in responding in a biblical way to those feelings and to your suffering. In other words, the goal of this psalm isn't just to feel better because somebody else is going through a hard time. Okay, That is not the gospel. The gospel doesn't just say, hey, you know what? You're not alone. Life's a mess for all of us. Um, come back next week. No, no. We identify with the psalmist so that we can respond with God's help like the psalmist. That's the goal. I'd say it this way. The goal of every psalm of lament, King's Way, is not commiseration. It's transformation. There's a difference. And I think there are at least three steps in this psalm, Psalm 102, given from the Lord, that tell us how we should respond in our affliction, in our suffering. So right now, I want you to think about whatever form of suffering or affliction has most dominated the stage of your life this year. Or whatever form of suffering or affliction, as you think about 2016 approaching, you're wondering I wonder if that's going to come my way next year. I want you to fix that in your mind and then let this psalm tell you how to respond. Three steps. Three steps. Here's the first one. Response number one when you're suffering. Pour out your sorrows. Verses 1 through 11. Pour out your sorrows. I don't think anything is more effective in exposing the depth of our frailty and our mortality than suffering. That's what the psalmist says. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. I was tempted to light a candle up here for the fact it set off a fire alarm so, so that we could remember, well, what does smoke do? You ever, you ever watch what happens when smoke comes up from a candle? You, you can see it for a couple inches and then it, then it dissipates into thin air. It, it, it's completely gone. And when you're suffering, when you're afflicted, 
so often, that's what your life feels like. It's unstable. It's dissipating. It's practically gone. My, my bones burn like a furnace, he says. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. Okay, translation. He's consumed with torment on the inside. He's beaten down. He's disillusioned. He's empty of all resolve to keep going. He says, you know what I'm like right now? I'm like a little piece of withered grass. That's how I feel. I'm done. I'm exhausted. I've got nothing left. And unless something changes, I wonder if I'm really going to die. That's Psalm 102. And worst of all, the psalmist says, it feels like God is angry with me. It feels like God must be opposed to me. Like he's, quote, taken me up and thrown me down. In other words, I'm struggling to see how any of this affliction, any of this suffering can be anything but the anger of God directed at me. That's how he feels. And the bottom line is that this guy, this woman, is quickly losing their bearings. As the sun withdraws its light from the world at evening, this situation is sucking the life out of them. And, and while the psalmist is, is even talking, he says, I'm withering. I'm withering. I'm not triumphing. I'm not a mountain. I, I'm not a Christian superhero. I, I'm not writing a book. I'm not sharing a testimony. I'm just withering. And the best comparison he can think of to what his life feels like as he looks around him as he sees a piece of grass and says, that dead grass, that's me. And as I've meditated on these words this week, friends, I realized, you know, on the whole, the Lord has spared me from chronic suffering. I can look around this room and, and I see stories of suffering that make mine pale in comparison. But, but there have been two times in my life, and I don't think this will surprise those of you who know me well, where I've experienced really acute emotional and mental pain. And the first was back in 2010 when we had a church split. And the second was this past year when our founding pastor resigned because of a moral failure. And there have been months in those two situations where it has felt like my heart is withering. I've had nights 
where I sit down in front of a plate of food and I can't eat a bite. I mean, maybe you can relate to this. Your suffering may not be like mine, but you know, I've been at family gatherings where you're, you're surrounded by all the people that love you and they're talking and, and you're not saying anything and suddenly it's like they all just fade into the background and you feel completely I say that not to make you feel sorry for me. I say that because I think that's, that those are the kinds of things that you experience when any of us are suffering. Right? You, you feel alone. You feel struck down. You feel like you're, you're withering. Trouble from without. Trouble from within. And bottom line, it just hurts. If you want one word, what does suffering feel like? Well, this will work. It just hurts. And sometimes it keeps on hurting and you have no idea when it's going to stop. And I think that's often the hardest part, just like this, this psalmist says. It's like if I knew when it was going to stop, if I knew when this emotional mental pain would go away, I mean, I could just sort of hold on, hunker down, you know, drive it hard. We're going to make it. But I don't know. Right. I mean, maybe you're you're experiencing a form of affliction right now and, and you look in the future and, and you have no guarantee, no idea. Is this ever going to go away? It's what suffering feels like. And when you're in that situation, friend, I wonder how you respond. I wonder how you respond. Well, here's what's so remarkable about verses 3 through 11. Okay? These verses are not spoken into thin air. They are spoken to someone. They're spoken to God. They're not organized. They're not proper. This is not dearest Heavenly Father. There are seven significant ways I am withering on the inside. Each has three subpoints, and I would like your help with the second subpoint. No. I mean, it's not, it's not organized. He's, he's pouring out his heart. Remember I said the first response to suffering, biblical response? Pour out your sorrows. He's taking, his, he's taking his thoughts, he's taking his feelings, his fears, his sadness, his anger, everything that's surging within his soul like a raging tide, and he's just pouring it out to God in prayer. It's raw. It's honest. But it's Godward. That's huge. He's not, he's not just going out into the woods and screaming to no one in particular. He's pouring out his soul to the Lord. Look at verse 1. Hear my prayer. Who? Oh, Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. In the day of my distress, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily when I call. Friends, listen. The, most, the single most important thing you can do in suffering is talk to God. I don't care what your situation is. I don't care what, what flavor of affliction you're dealing with. The single most important thing you can do in every experience of suffering is to talk to God. That's all prayer is. It's talking to God. 
But so often, that's the last thing we do when we're suffering. Right? What do we do instead? Where we're really good at talking to ourselves. Actually, it's more like listening to ourselves. Troubles, troubles, my troubles. It's just this endless cycle of you rehearsing inside. My life is hard, all this suffering. We're great at talking to ourselves. You know, you know what else we're really good at instead of talking to God? We like to talk to other people. So when we're suffering, what do we like to do? We, we like to walk among our friends, hang out with people, tell them how hard our life is, sympathy. Hey, man, this is just so tough. We, 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 we want to talk with other people. We, we listen to ourselves. We talk with other people. And the one thing that's not happening quite often is we're not talking to God. We're not doing what the psalmist is doing. And I'm not dissing talking to yourself or talking to other people when you're suffering. What I'm saying is that you'll never be able to talk to yourself truthfully or talk to others effectively if you're not first talking to God. Remember that. So friend, what's your first response to suffering? Is it to pop a pill or vent on Facebook or grab a cold one? Okay, those are all rightly used gifts from God. But church, I want to challenge you this year to be a people who pour out your sorrows to the Lord. Every sorrow. And if you're not sure how to do that, if you hear that phrase, pour out your sorrows to the Lord. That just sounds like Christian lingo. I don't have a clue how to do that. Well, here's what you do. You take Psalm 102, 3 through 11, and you speak it out loud to the God who hears. You let him teach you how to pour out your sorrows. The goal, this is very important, the goal is not to get it off your chest. Please hear this. The goal in pouring out our sorrows to God is not to get it off our chest. The goal is to learn how to relate to God as an actual person. I think so often we don't do that. I mean, he's just this religious or spiritual idea. He's this deity up there somewhere. And yeah. Do you realize God's a person? He's a person. Church, he's a person who sees you. He's a person who knows you. He's a person who cares for you. And so the first response in suffering is to pour out our sorrows to a person, namely to God. To God. Biblical change is intensely relational. When you're suffering, responding the right way instead of the wrong way isn't about exchanging response B for response A. Like some sort of put off one behavior, put on another behavior. You know what it is? It's about shifting from one way of relating to God to another way of relating to God. Biblical change is always relational. And that's why our first response to suffering, first biblical response is to pour out our sorrows. 
Suffering reminds us that we're frail, we're mortal, we're helpless, we're weak. That's why God lets it come our way. So that we pour out our sorrows. Here's the second response. We pour out our sorrows. Then we plead God's promises. Pour out our sorrows. We plead God's promises. Look at verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like the grass. Now look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Okay, let me tell you what is not going on between verses 11 and 12. What is not going on? Here's what's not going on. The psalmist is not making some kind of quantum leap from the land of discouragement to the land of faith. You know, if you've read scripture before, you see these points and sometimes they start with, but you, O Lord, it's like, okay, here he goes doing the godly thing, you know, no longer discouraged. Now I'm full of faith. No, no, he's still withering. We got to see that. He's still withering. Don't don't read this super spiritual quantum leap into the psalm. Here's what's happening. As he's pouring out his heart to the Lord, he's acutely aware of his mortality. And as he grows in his awareness of his mortality, his attention, by contrast, is drawn toward God's eternity. And as his attention is drawn toward God's eternity or immortality, he realizes, God, you are everything I am not. I'm withering like grass. You are enthroned forever. I'm passing away like smoke. You're remembered throughout all generations. I'm mortal, you're eternal, and my suffering is starting to make me all too aware of the fact that I am not like you. But notice here that in the words of Derek Kidner, the psalmist is not contrasting the changeless God, with the restless, us, in some sort of bitter or envious way. You know, God, how come you get to have it all together and I don't? Okay, no, he's not doing that. He's recognizing that God's eternity, the fact that he is everything we're not, God's eternity tells us something about who God is. Namely, that He is Lord of time and His purposes will endure. The fact that God's eternal doesn't just posit something about His character. It reminds us that He is Lord of time and His purposes will endure. And His purposes endure not in some sort of cold calculating puppeteer sense but in a personal, relational sense. Okay, when you see Lord written in capital letters in your Bible, do you know what that means? That means that it's translating not the generic word for God, but God's covenant name, Yahweh. 
the name God chose by which to reveal himself as the great I am to his people. It's a covenant name made known to a covenant people. So to speak the name of Yahweh is to speak of a God who is not just Lord of time in general, but Lord of his people's times in particular. Okay, a Lord who not only has enduring purposes in general, but a Lord who has enduring purposes for his covenant people in particular. Okay, that means, church, verse 13, that the psalmist knows there will come a day when Yahweh, the Lord of time, who fulfills his purposes in time for his chosen people, quote, will arise and have pity on Zion. It's God's eternity, contrasted with his mortality, that alert his soul to that. But notice the psalmist doesn't stop here. Okay, remember I said step one was to pour out your sorrows. Step two, plead God's promises. Here's where we start to see this. Notice, notice what happens now. The psalmist takes that promise from God. You will arise and have pity on Zion. He takes that promise from God and he turns it into, please hear this, a plea to God. He takes a promise from God. And he turns it back into a plea to God. Look at what the rest of verse 13 says. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. I mean, I read that and I think, good night. Are you going to get struck down? <laughs> I mean, isn't that a little arrogant? You're going, you're going to walk up to God? Say, the appointed time has come. The time is now. Well, yeah. Do you realize that though that could be an expression of arrogant anger, in this setting and in our suffering, that is an expression of profound humility. And the reason is that pleading the promises of God back to him means that you take God at his word. And that's humility. It's not arrogance. It means you take his promises at your word. So, so the psalmist finishes confessing that God is Lord of history and his purposes can't fail. So then he says, God, you have promised that you will arise and have pity on Zion. And I'm pleading with you to fulfill your promise now. Humility takes God at his word and pleads with God to do what he's promised to do. Humility says, Lord, you said you would do this. I'm asking you to do it. Do it today. Do it, do it now. Don't, don't wait. I'm desperate for you. Plead the promises of God back to God. And friends, we'll move through these quickly. I think there are at least four promises from God in the next three verses, 14 to 17, that we need to learn to plead back to God. Four promises from God that we need to learn to plead back to God. Promise one. This is in verse 14. God, you've promised to love your people. Now, this one is a little hard to see at first glance, but I think it works like this. The psalmist says, the stones of Jerusalem are dear to us. The dust of Jerusalem, 
evokes our compassion. We're, we're nothing compared to you, Lord. We're nothing. We're dust. We're stones. But God, the psalmist says, even though your people are dust and stones, I care for your people. I have pity for your people. I feel compassion for your people as one of your people when your people, along with me, are suffering. And Lord, if I, as small as I am, feel love and compassion for your suffering people, how much greater is your love and compassion for your suffering people? So because I care, and I'm small, I know that you care. You care greatly. So I'm asking you to intervene now. Why? Because I know you love your people. He promised to. Promised to love your people. You've promised to glorify your name. I'm asking you, the psalmist says to God, to arise and have pity on Zion now. Why? Because when you do, Lord, verse 15, look at this. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And kings of the earth will fear your glory. In other words, God, you have promised that you love your glory. You've promised that you're working all of human history toward one great end, namely the exaltation of the glory of God and the Son of God. And because you've promised that, Lord, I am asking you right now to intervene in my suffering that your name might be glorified. That's not arrogant. That's aligning your heart with God's heart. Promise three. You promised to love your people, glorify your name. Here's the third one he's pleading back to God. God, you've promised to save your people. Look at verse 16. This image of the Lord building up Zion is a picture of God establishing these protective walls of salvation around his people. Which is ultimately what? What? It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection to save us from the guilt and power and presence of sin. So essentially, this psalmist is saying, intervene in our suffering now, Lord. Why? Because you promised to save your people. And here's the last promise he pleads back to God. Verse 17. Lord, you've promised to regard the prayer of the destitute. You ever wondered what qualifies your prayer to be heard in the courtroom of heaven? Some of you are thinking, I know Jesus. Grew up saying that. Well, yeah. But we're preaching Psalm 102. What qualifies your prayer to be heard in the courtroom of heaven? One word. Destitution. For real. <laughs> Do you realize that? It, the one thing in this psalm, verse 17, that causes God to regard the prayer is that the person is destitute. <laughs> That's amazing. Translation, if you are destitute, God will regard your prayer. Lord, you've promised to love your people. You've promised to glorify your name, to save your people, to answer our prayers. And so I am pleading all of those promises back to you and saying, God, will you intervene in my suffering 
now. I poured out my sorrows to you, and now I'm pleading your promises back to you. I was thinking about this as an illustration. How often, as a dad, do I find myself telling one of my boys, you know, hey, Ethan, look at me. I'm going to take you fishing. Well, what do you think happens the next day at 6.17 a.m.? I'm passed out. Is there somebody really close to me? Like, ha! You know, it's, hey, Dad. What, Ethan? You said you'd take me fishing. Now, could he do that with an attitude? Sure. But nine times out of ten, he doesn't. What is, he, what is he doing? He's honoring me. <laughs> because he's showing that he takes me at my word. Friend, when you plead the promises of God back to God, you're not being arrogant. You're not being presumptuous. You are honoring the Lord by proving that you take him at his word. Pour out your sorrows. Plead the promises. Final response. Trust God's faithfulness. This is so simple and yet so hard. Pour out your sorrows. Plead the promises. Trust God's faithfulness. Verses 18 to 28. I think in verse 18, the psalmist does something crazy. I mean, it's just crazy. Here's what happens. He turns his gaze to the future, to a generation yet to come. And he says, I am so confident that a day is coming when God will fulfill his promises. That right now, years before they come to pass, I'm going to write a testimony for my children and my grandchildren, telling them what God has done for I mean, I'm all for writing testimonies. You know, you ever written one before it came to pass? Some of you? Yeah, don't be bashful. That, that's what's going on here. The psalmist is still suffering. He's still waiting, but he knows God's going to be faithful. He knows God's going to answer his prayer whether or not he lives to see it. He knows verses 19 and 20 are going to happen. Namely, that the Lord is going to look down from his holy height. Down to the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners. To set free those who were doomed to die. The psalmist says, write that down. So that one day. When a people yet to be created reads it, they can look back and praise God for being faithful to fulfill the promises that I pled to him. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's going to happen. I trust God's faithfulness. And so I'm writing my testimony now. Friends, some of you maybe hear that and think, that is so presumptuous. You know what I say? That's faith. 
That's faith. What, what does Hebrews 11 say faith is? What is it? It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That's faith. That's not presumption. Trust God's faithfulness. That's where he lands. And here's what's so amazing to me about Psalm 102. Genuine faith, strong faith in this psalm, it's not the result of seeing the fulfillment. It's not. Genuine faith, please hear this, for the psalmist and for us, friends, is not the result of seeing the fulfillment. Genuine faith is the result of pleading the promises. Because it's the very act of pleading the promises themselves. God, you've said you will do this. I'm pleading with you to do it. That very act on the heels of pouring out your sorrows is the act that God uses to sow seeds of genuine faith in your heart. It's pleading the promises that gives us faith. Not not seeing the fulfillment. And yet the psalmist's faith, though real, it's not detached from reality. You know, at first glance, verses 23 and 24, look at them. Feel like the editor messed up. Lord, you're a faithful God. I trust your faithfulness. There's a day coming when my kids are going to look back on this testimony I'm writing for the future and they're going to worship you and praise you and all the peoples and kingdoms are going to join in. He has broken my strength in mid-course. That's like... You know what that says? Biblical faith isn't divorced from the reality of ongoing suffering. It's not like you reach this point where, you know, once I lived in the land of suffering, now I live in the land of faith. No, you don't. In other words, these steps are all happening in a very messy way all at the same time. We're we're constantly pouring out our sorrows, pleading promises, trusting God's faithfulness, more sorrows, more pleading, sorrows, 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 trusting faithfulness. It's messy. That's the point. This isn't like neat, tidy progression. But all three things are here. Pouring out your sorrows pleading the promises, trusting God's faithfulness. Genuine faith isn't a state of meditation where you float above your troubles unaffected by pain. Biblical faith isn't about denying your suffering or forgetting your suffering, biblical faith means trusting the faithfulness of God in your suffering. That's what it is. So let me conclude with this question, church. How could this psalmist trust the faithfulness of God? What what empowered him in his suffering to trust God's faithfulness? He's He's poured out his stars. He's pled the promises. We, we see that he's trusting God's faithfulness. What, him, what empowered him? What enabled him to trust God's faithfulness? Well, look at verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. 
but you'll remain. They will wear out like a garment. You'll change them like a robe. They'll pass away. But you, Kingsway, he's the same. But you are the same. And your years have no end. Translation. Lord, you're not just an eternal God. You're an unchanging God. God could be eternally changing. You aware of that? But he's not. He's eternally unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means, please hear this, that God is not going to wake up one morning and say, you know that promise that I made yesterday that you were pleading so earnestly? Well, um, change of plans. Yeah, I said that. Uh... It's a new day. You know, you changed. I changed. We all changed. It was a good thought. Really, really hoped it would happen. But, but my purposes have you know, sort of had a midlife crisis. <laughs> no. No. Never. Okay? God's never done that. God is never going to do that. He's an eternal God, which means his purposes always prevail, even when they're not on our timetable. And he's an unchanging God, which means that you can trust him to be faithful to the promises he's made to you. And friends, there is no greater example of God's faithfulness to you than what he starts with Christmas. Because it's on Christmas that we remember that Jesus Christ came into the world to live and die and rise from the grave so that one day he could bring an end to all sin and suffering without bringing an end to you at the same time. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is unchanging. And Jesus will finish what he started. Suffering is not going to have the final word. The eternal God can't change. You plead his promises, they will be fulfilled. You might not know when. His timetable is not our timetable. It kind of works like that. He's eternal. We're not. For now we're mortal. He's immortal. But he doesn't change. And you can trust his faithfulness. When you're suffering, friend, do not think Christianity calls you to blind faith. It demands informed reliance. For this reason, when your suffering is great, the faithfulness of God is greater still. That's the psalm. When your suffering is great, the faithfulness of God is greater still. Your suffering may increase without perceivable end till the day you die. You know what? The faithfulness of God is greater still. And that's why in 2016, we need to be a people who pour out our sorrows, who plead God's promises, and who trust His faithfulness. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord. I need help because I am very aware right now that everything I've preached is absolutely impossible for this preacher to do. If you don't help me. God, I don't think I'm alone. So Lord, I, I pray this year. I, I pray that as we're about to go into a new year, carrying over residual suffering, knowing that most likely some form of new suffering is waiting for us. I pray you would help us to put a stake in the ground this week. That when suffering is great, your faithfulness is greater still. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now as we sing these songs, that you would help us to pour out our sorrows, to plead your promises back to you, to trust your faithfulness. In Jesus' name.